Good evening, everyone. And here we are back in our study of the uh, book of Revelation. And uh, the message uh, concern, this evening concerns the seven bowls of God's wrath. I have spoken to God, and he has agreed to provide some special effects for this evening's message. <laughs> you are already starting to hear it in the background. Don't be surprised should it uh, increase in intensity, but it just sort of fits in with the theme of the message this evening. Now, we uh, come at this uh, study of Revelation uh, kind of in fits and starts, and we do from time to time uh, have some interruptions in our Sunday evening uh, service, and that's, uh, that's perfectly all right, and, uh, but we're back in it this evening, but it's always important, I think, when you study the book of Revelation, uh, to always put the passages in context and to remember the big picture. That's where we get in trouble in the book of Revelation. If we start to get so focused on a detail, uh, we get wrapped up with trying to figure out what this detail represents or that detail represents, and we miss the forest for the trees. And so it's important to uh, recognize the context uh, for the book of Revelation so that we unfold it according to God's intention. If you miss that flow of thought in the book of Revelation, you miss the point that God is trying to communicate. We began by looking at a prologue in chapter 1, and in that prologue we read in verses 7 and following in chapter 1, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so the theme of the book of Revelation is laid out in that prologue. The theme is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Do you believe that? Amen. I trust that you do. Uh, he's coming back, and the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And the book of Revelation describes then the eschatological triumph of Christ over the anti-Christian forces of evil in the world and in the heavenly realms. Now, I used a big word there. I understand that. The word eschatological, it just simply means the end. The eschaton is the end. And so this is about what happens in the end. It's the eschatological triumph of Jesus Christ over the anti-Christian forces of evil in the world and in the heavenly realms. So even in the very beginning uh, words of the book of Revelation, we learn something. We learn that in spite of whatever might appear to us to be the case, Jesus wins. And I think that we ought to praise God for that right from the beginning. Now, the purpose of that communication is to encourage the churches in Asia Minor who are under a great deal of pressure. That's why we've entitled the series, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, because those churches were small, they were struggling. They found themselves uh, in a culture that was antagonistic to the things of God. They were on the, on, faced on the one hand with, with the Jews who were against uh, the, the growing, burgeoning Christian movement, and they were also finding themselves at odds very frequently with the Roman Empire. So they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. So they needed encouragement. They needed to know that ultimately Jesus wins in the end. Now that purpose is accomplished, as we have pointed out, in four visions. And the reason why we know that's the case is that the visions are introduced by the Apostle John being taken somewhere in the Spirit to see a particular vision. 
And that phrase in the Spirit marks those four visions. The first one begins in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, which is a vision of the glorified Christ. And it also includes the messages to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. The second vision then begins in chapter 4. It starts with the heavenly vision and then moves into the elements of the tribulation. It is by far the longest of the four visions, and we're still in the midst of it, even in chapters 15 and 16 this evening. The third vision begins in chapter 17. It has to do with the mystery of Babylon and the judgment of Babylon and the final triumph and consummation of Christ. And then finally, the final vision in chapter 21, beginning in verse 9 and following, the fourth vision has to do with the new Jerusalem and the, uh, the heavenly uh, state. And so we're in the middle of the second vision. The structure of the second vision unfolds in a number of different elements. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 give us, first of all, a scene in heaven with God and with Christ in which the lion lamb, that is Christ who is described in both terms, is worthy to break the seals and to open the book. And the book has to do with the record of the events leading to the consummation of history. And Jesus is worthy of doing that. So I think it's important that we recognize that this vision begins with that heavenly scene of God and of Christ. Then in chapters 6 through uh, the beginning of chapter 8, we have the seven seals. Now the seals are able, enable us to open the book. They aren't the book itself, and, uh, but we find those seals being introduced to us. Uh, there is an interlude in the middle of this section in chapter 7 between seals 6 and 7 in which we were introduced to the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel and also the great multitude from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. And we recognized as we exposited that section that those are two descriptions of the same people. They are the church of Jesus, including Jew and Gentile for all ages, the 144,000 sealed on earth, and the great multitude experiencing uh, heaven itself in the end. And so we find that to be described as well. Uh, that section begins or ends with the seventh seal, where there is actually no plague itself in the seventh seal, but silence in heaven. Then beginning in chapter 8, verse 2, running through chapter 11, are the seven trumpets. This is all, again, part of the tribulation that is unfolding. And there is an interlude in that section of the seven trumpets between trumpets 6 and 7, just as there was an interlude between the seals 6 and 7. In that interlude in chapters 10 and 11, there was an angelic announcement. John gained his commission uh, as well as the description of the two witnesses who were martyred and then, re then were resurrected. And also it indicates that those who survived the earthquake and observed the resurrection of the witnesses gave glory to God, indicating repentance. And we uh, conjectured that this may possibly refer to the large-scale conversion of Jewish people toward the end of time. Uh, no plague content as well was described in uh, trumpet number seven, instead the uh, passage ends with a scene of worship at the end of chapter 11. And then in chapters 12 through 14, which we examined the last time we were together, uh, some commentators regard that as an interlude. Uh, we looked at it perhaps as another cycle of sevens, uh, seven significant histories, where in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, we have the relationship between the woman and the dragon, or the people of God and the dragon. In uh, chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, we have the history of Satan being cast out of heaven. 
In verses 13 to 17 of that chapter, we have a description of the war between Satan and the woman or the people of God once he was cast out. In chapter 13, we find the beast from the sea and then also the beast from the earth, one of which has more to do with the political uh, systems and the other has to do with the religious systems which support the corrupt political systems. And then in chapter 14, we have the lamb and the 144,000 on Mount Zion. Now that's interrupted once again with an interlude between six and seven. <clears throat> there are three angelic announcements that take place and then the scene shifts to its conclusion of the harvest of the earth. And we recognized at that time there were two harvests, one for the redeemed and one for the unredeemed. And now we move to the completion of the second vision, which are the seven bowls of the wrath of God in chapters 15 and 16. And so that's where we pick up our exposition this evening. First of all, beginning in chapter 15, verse 1, we read, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so as we unfold this section, we're talking about essentially the martyrs anticipating the end result of the wrath of God being unfolded. We're talking about the preparation of uh, the pe people of God for the wrath of God as it unfolds against the people who have rejected God. Uh, it talks in this passage about the last plagues. These are the last plagues that uh, essentially finish the wrath of God. It's in, in context, it means it's the last plagues as part of the tribulation. As you'll learn as we continue to unfold the book of Revelation, there will still be more wrath to come in Satan's and the beast's destruction in the lake of fire. But in the context of the tribulation, these are the last of the wrath of God being poured out upon those who have rejected God. We find a sea of glass mixed with fire. Uh, the sea of glass, as you recall, is what surrounds the throne of God. In Revelation 4, verse 6, it says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now the fire with respect to the sea of glass is a possible representative of the judgment or of the nature of the death of the martyrs which brought them to stand on the sea. And so that's the image that we are struck with. And so they're standing on the sea are those who have been victorious over the beast, victorious because of their martyrdom. You remember that the martyrs conquered not by worshiping the beast, but by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So in Revelation 7, 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. 
and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, the martyrs who died in the context of the great tribulation. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Revelation 13, verse 15, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And so the thing that we need to recognize about that is that these martyrs engaged victory even in their deaths. And now they find themselves in the presence of God on the sea which surrounds the throne anticipating the judgment of all those who have rejected God. We find in this image or this vision harps and songs which are used to celebrate victory. So even in death, the martyrs are able to celebrate the victory that comes to them uh, through Jesus Christ. There's the song of Moses and the Lamb. That's an interesting confluence of songs. You'll remember that there is a song of Moses that they sang after Israel uh, was delivered from Egypt through the instrumentation of the plagues. And so there's a question about whether this is just one song or whether they sang the song of Moses and then there's another song of the Lamb. But you have to recall that this song is in anticipation of the redemption of the earth through the instrumentation of the bowls of God's wrath. That's what's coming next. And many of those bowls, you'll see, are similar in vain to what we saw in the plagues of Egypt. So there's a coming together of what we saw prefigured in the judgment of Egypt and the plagues which are represented by the bowls of God's wrath. And because it's the song of Moses and the Lamb, it includes both the redemptive work of Christ as well as the justice of his judgments all at the same time. The works of God are called great and marvelous in this passage. The ways of God or the course of conduct or the way of thinking, the journey that God provides is righteous and true. The being of God is said to be holy. The titles of God include the Lord God the Almighty, the King of the nations, or some translations have the King of the ages, and Lord or the Sovereign One. And the reactions that are evoked by this display include fear, glorifying the name of God, genuine worship. And it's not necessarily to be thought of as true of everyone, but just the redeemed from every nation have that kind of response to God. And then the text continues to unfold in verse 5 and following. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." Uh, here in this passage, we have the angels receiving wrath from the temple, which they will then eventually go out and pour out on the people who have been antagonistic to the things of God. It's interesting that the temple and the tabernacle are identified here. Both are names for the dwelling places of God. 
And both contain the Ark of the Covenant, indication of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises and of his law. And the temple is opened. It's symbolic of revealing something that God knew and now is going to pour forth. Seven angels with seven plagues. The plagues will be reminiscent, as we mentioned, uh, of their evacuation from Egypt. Uh, clean and bright linen and golden girdles indicate the splendor of these angels. The four living creatures are the closest beings to God on, in the throne room of God. They deliver the bowls of wrath to these angels. And that's an indication that the bowls of the wrath of God originate from God himself and carry his sanction. I want to mention something at this point because we have a tendency in evangelical Christianity today to underplay the wrath of God in the first place. And most evangelicals recognize that the wrath of God will eventually take place on all those who have unalterably been opposed to the things of God. But we also have a tendency, even among uh, Bible-believing evangelicals, to underplay God's role in the wrath of God. That in fact the judgment of God is really more about God turning his back on those who are unalterably opposed to him or those who have worshipped the beast. But this demonstrates that the wrath of God comes from God himself and bears his direct sanction. God is involved in the judgment and we should not dodge that truth in the scriptures and we find it in Revelation in a number of ways. We'll see it again in several ways this evening. The temple here is filled with smoke from the glory and power of God. Both of those things are unleashed and revealed about God. And then the temple is evacuated until the bowls are poured out. So the only being left in the temple is God himself. And he has gained his undivided occupation to deliver justice to those who worship the beast. God is not delivered out of his, his uh, responsibility for the judgment of, him, of, wrath, of the wrath of God. And so what do we make of this? What are the applications? Well, first of all, we need to recognize in chapter 15 that this is victory by faithful martyrdom leading directly into the presence of God. Uh, this is a case in which Satan appears to have won. He's killed the, those who are faithful to him. But instead, that's not the reality because these martyrs have engaged in victory, and that's the image that we see in chapter 15. We also recognize in this passage that even in judgment, God is sovereign and he's just. He can be trusted even in the midst of a seemingly impossible situation. His wrath is unmixed with any taint of sin. You and I get angry, and almost always it's tainted with some mixture of selfishness and sin. Not God. God's wrath is without any kind of uh, mixture, with any taint of sin. Every act of God's judgment is holy and righteous. And then judgment issues from the very throne of God. Don't try to abrogate God from his part in a just and holy judgment. He will inflict these things, but always he will do, some, do such in the way that is just and righteous. That's chapter 15. Now we move into chapter 16 where you actually do have the seven bowls of the wrath of God. 
And one of the interesting observations about that is that uh, we've been moving along at sort of a snail's pace through this vision. And it seems like uh, the author of the book of Revelation, God is, is taking us through slowly the development of the end times. But when you get to the seven bowls of God's wrath, it seems like things happen much more quickly, much more succinctly than the seals and the trumpets ever did. The final judgment, dear friends, is swift. And when it starts, the pace increases toward the end. And so, for instance, this is what you have. To begin with, verse 1, the command, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. That command comes directly from God himself. No one else is in the temple since its evacuation back in chapter 15. And God is directly involved in the wrath that he's about to unfold. Then verse 2, the loathsome and malignant sores of the first bowl. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Again, this is reminiscent of the plague of boils in Egypt. Uh, the objects of this plague are beast worshippers. Those who resist worshipping the beast have been sealed and protected, as you recall, uh, from our past studies. Then immediately in verse 3, the second bowl is unleashed, where sea is, it is turned into blood. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. That's, of course, reminiscent of the Nile being turned into blood in the Egyptian uh, exodus. Uh, now, the second trumpet also had something similar, as you recall from back in chapter 8. There was a mountain burning with fire that was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea was turned to blood, and a third of the, uh, third of the beings in the sea died. But here, the extent uh, is full and complete. We're not talking about a third of this or a third of that. Every living thing in the sea is said to have died in the second bowl. Then, beginning in verse 4, the third bowl, the rivers and springs turn into blood. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the river and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty. True and righteous are your judgments. The actual devastation is not described, but it is implied and imaginable. Clearly, this involves great suffering. An angel indicates the justice of this judgment. These have drunk the blood of saints and prophets, and yet there is one more cup to drink. They will drink the wrath of God. God is said to be righteous. He's the Holy One. He's the one who are and who were, the present and the past. What happened to the future? Well, the future is now in this description. He's the Lord God Almighty. And the altar responds in agreement. This is the only place we see that the altar speaks. Now, do you remember who's under the altar? Do you remember that? The martyrs are under the altar, according to chapter 6, verse 9. Now, we're not sure entirely whether it's the altar of burnt offering or the altar of incense, but the meaning is these are those who agree with the angel that the judgments of God are just. 
I'm inclined to think this is the altar of incense because that's where the prayers of the people of God emanate from. And so you have the martyrs issuing agreement in prayer to the, to the God who is just in his judgments. And then beginning in verse 9, the fourth bowl immediately unfolds where the sun scorches human beings. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given it to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Now, this is some kind of cosmic catastrophe involving the sun, and the result is intense pain, kind of foreshadowing the lake of fire. The response is that these individuals, the beast worshipers, blasphemed the name of God. Rather than give glory to God, which would be repentance, they blasphemed the name of God. They refused to repent and glorify him. Again, God is said to be in control of these plagues. Then verses 10 and following, the fifth bowl, the kingdom of beasts is turned into darkness. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Now wrath comes directly on the center of operations of the beast, rather than on those who just worship the beast. The beast of the sea, as you'll recall, is the political military power. Extraordinary pain is involved, perhaps a pain exacerbated by darkness. No visual stimuli to distract from the tactile pain. And their response, once again, is to blaspheme God and refuse to repent. Again, blaspheming God is the opposite of glorifying God. And then the sixth bowl in verses 12 to 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called har Megedon. Now, this particular uh, bowl, the sixth bowl, has no real plague it is essentially preparation for the final battle. Uh, the frogs are demonic spirits of one kind or another. They engage in miraculous signs directed to kings who will come for battle. Uh, satanic in origin are they, the dragon, the beast of the earth, the beast of the sea, who now is identified as the false prophet. That's the first time, by the way, that the beast of the earth is said to be a false prophet. And that's consistent with its religious character. And verse 15 is kind of an interjection in this uh, bowl for the church. You'll recall what that said. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. That helps the church to stay in perspective during this great tribulation. It's reminiscent of Jesus teaching about the second coming, his coming as a thief in the night. Its purpose is that the church should be watchful 
and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And then in verse 16, we have the gathering of these kings. This is an interesting uh, uh, observation to make. Uh, Harmageddon literally means the mountain of Megiddo. The mountain of Megiddo. The funny thing about that is Megiddo is not a mountain. Megiddo is a plain. Megiddo is a plain, part of the plain of Jezreel. It's between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. I've driven through that a couple of, on a couple of occasions. There's no doubt about it. You can't see a hill anywhere, pretty much. But it is a famous battleground in the history of Israel. Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanite king Jabin uh, in this plain. Azariah was slain by Jehu in this scene. But Ezekiel speaks about a final battle taking place on the mountains of Israel. And so what you have in this passage is some combination of these two images of conquest. The mountains of Palestine and the battlegrounds of Israel's history are brought together in this grand battle which comes in the finale. And then the seventh bowl unfolds in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. This vision has to do with the air, which is the location, as you'll recall, from other New Testament passages of the kingdom of Satan. He's the prince of the kingdom of the air. And the common manifestations of divine power and glory are evidenced in this passage. An announcement from the throne that it is done. Again, this is the last of the tribulation wrath. Not the last of wrath entirely, but the last of the wrath that takes place in the tribulation. The earthquake is unsurpassed. A similar phenomena took place in chapter 4, verse 5, in the vision of God. And in chapter 8, verse 5, in the preparation for the sounding of the trumpets. And in chapter 11, following the sounding of the seventh trumpet. But this is unique in its extent. The great city, which is Babylon, is split into three parts, which is an indication of its complete destruction. The cities of the nations also collapsed. Uh, that is sort of a proleptic view, an anticipatory view of the destruction of the nations that supported the beast. And Babylon drinks the cup of the wrath of God. And you'll remember that Babylon is simply symbolic of the world political system that is antagonistic to God. The islands and the mountains are affected. Huge hailstones fall on men. And the response, once again, is they blaspheme God. Again, they failed to glorify God. There is no final repentance for those who have worshipped the beast. And so God is sovereign, even over judgment. That's what we see in this passage. 
We also see some interesting things in this passage. The unity of the Bible is evidenced in here because we have such a connection between the plagues of Egypt and the song of Moses and the Lamb. And so uh, there is a sense in which the Bible it ties itself together in the book of Revelation. God responds as well in this, in this chapter to the prayers and the worship of his people, as we saw emanating from under the altar. Repentance, by the way, is also not something that people do unless they are moved by God in regeneration. All of these people under judgment uh, do not repent. God's judgment is not rehabilitative. We'd like to think that we send people to prison so that they might be rehabilitated and able to enter society as changed people. We have very much mixed results with that in our own age, don't we? But in this judgment, there is no rehabilitation. This is the justice of God being poured out on those who are unalterably opposed to him. And then ultimately, the kings of the earth respond to Satan's direction. And so I think that's a warning to all of us not to align ourselves too closely with political systems because they can easily find themselves responding to impulses of the satanic origins. And then we have the pouring out of the wrath on Babylon, which is mentioned briefly in the seven bowls, but which will be elaborated in chapters 17 and 18 in much greater detail. And those are the things that we discover in chapters 15 and 16. But in conclusion, what I'd like us to do is to consider a number of provocative questions that occur to me and perhaps they occur to you as we read through these two chapters which deals with the bowls of the wrath of God. Let me ask you these questions and see how you might respond. First of all, do you find victory even when Satan appears to have won an earthly battle? Do you find victory even when Satan appears to have won an earthly battle. The martyrs did. The people of God should. That's the message that we want to recognize because the martyrs were said to be victorious in death and they even celebrated even though Satan appeared to have defeated them. A second provocative question. As you see the events unfold as they move toward the end, are you able to remember the nature and character of God? That's one of the messages we see throughout these two chapters, that God is holy, that God is righteous, that God is sovereign, that he, God is omniscient, that God is omnipotent. Can you remember those things? Those are the evident characteristics of God, the attributes of God that we see unfolding in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this judgment. Are you able to remember who God is? Another provocative question, are you able to trust this God? when things seem to be falling apart around you? Are you able to trust this God when things seem to be falling apart around you? Let me put it to you this way. How will you respond or how did you respond if you lost an election in this country? Think about that. That's an encouraging thing for you to recognize, that God's in charge. No matter what happens on the political scene in this day and age, you may be quite perplexed about what you see in this day and age, but are you able to trust this God no matter what circumstances happen to unfold for us politically? Here's another one. Do you see God's judgment as being righteous and just and holy? Can you believe in a God who is actively involved in directing this judgment? 
We don't have to justify God when he righteously carries out his sentences. Another one is this. Do you pray for God's righteous judgment of evil? You find this in the Psalms. We have a hard time echoing those things from time to time. But that is the plea of the martyrs in chapter 6, praying for the judgment of evil. Do you pray for God's righteous judgment of evil in our world? Do you recognize that you can't scare the hell out of people? You know, I hate to put it like that, but that's what you find in, in these chapters. You can't scare the hell out of people. That, that the, no matter what the wrath of God is that pours out upon those who worship the beast, they don't repent. The judgment of God at this stage of the game is not rehabilitative. Do you see that only those who are regenerate are going to turn to Christ? Only those who have been born again turn to Christ. The punishment of the wrath of God does not accomplish redemption. And then finally, do you hold power loosely? Political power or any other kind of power? Uh, will you be discouraged or demoralized if things don't go the way you think they ought to go? You know, the worst days of the Church of Jesus Christ over the last two millennium have been times when the church was too closely associated with the political realm. Those were the darkest days for the Church of Jesus Christ. So we need to be careful about that because that's what we see. The satanic elements uh, engage not only the political system but also in a religious system that supports it. We need to be careful about who we are before God. So that's what we discover, I think, by way of application and challenge from these two chapters, 15 and 16, as the seven bowls of the wrath of God are poured out on those who have worshipped the beast and who have been unalterably opposed to the things of God. Uh, may we pray together, and then Pastor Don will come and lead us in one final hymn. Heavenly Father, these are stark words. We don't consider them lightly. We find them challenging to our spirits. We find ourselves in many ways revulsed by some of the images that are unfolding before us. Nevertheless, Father, we recognize that these judgments come from your very throne room, that you are a just and holy and righteous God who ultimately will have your way in this world. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ will prevail. And the evil in this world, all of those elements that are unalterably opposed to you, will be judged and punished. O oh God, glorify yourself. Give us the courage to walk as the people of God through difficult times. And as we find the end approaching, we pray that we would remain faithful, that we would be the people of God in this place for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.